And hello, everyone. I want to also thank, um, the, thank the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership for this opportunity to present this training on the principles of engagement over telehealth. So our objectives are that we're going to, uh, today we'll be reviewing fundamental engagement approaches. We're going to look at approaches and attitudes that lay the foundation for rapport building skills as they apply to providing mental health related services. Okay, and then we'll be discussing how to adapt those when we're conducting our sessions or interacting with folks over the phone or on video. We'll be, um, we'll be also doing the same on Friday in a more detailed way with rapport building skills around attending and communication. So we'll get more specific uh, on Friday regarding that. Um, today we'll also explore strategies for turning telehealth challenges, of which there are many, into opportunities for building a stronger connection with clients. So actually turning this challenge, this, you know, the barriers that come up, into ways to uh, create a stronger therapeutic alliance with our, uh, the people that we work with. And then um, our last objective is that, uh, and we'll cover this mostly on Friday, is looking at some specific engagement skills as they apply to the different helper roles. So um, <clears throat> I'm about to ask what your roles are in a moment, but this um, presentation was developed keeping in mind that there are many different um, types of roles um, that you all serve in working with the clients that we work with. So some of you may be therapists, case manager, mental health worker, peer partners, peer specialists, or we might even have some nurses or psychiatrists or nurse practitioners on the call. So providing, uh, just the setup, providing services remotely, right? So in this era of COVID-19, we have uh, transitioned many of us to providing most, if not all, of our services over the phone or by video conferencing. Um, and may, many of us may have not done a lot of that before. So this can present challenges, as we know, as we seek to maintain that rapport with our ongoing clients, you know, so there's not too much of a disruption in the therapeutic or working alliance that we have with them, and also to build you know, brand new working relationships with clients that we've never met, that we are taking on, that we've taken on since switching to remote services. So um, this may be new territory. Um, some of those we serve may really prefer meeting with us in person. Um, some may prefer the online uh, system now that, or phone calls now that we're doing that. I just want to acknowledge that um, I realize that many of you have been doing this now for more, uh, you know, for up to three months. So, um, so I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, so I geared the training, you know, it would have been nice to have this training three months ago, probably, but I geared this to the fact that we're ever adjusting. Okay. So um, bear with me if some of the material um, is something you already have, you know, figured out. Okay. So um, there is a learning curve. So even though we may have been doing this for a while, we still may feel uncertain or really just don't like it. Um, and so we're going to be addressing some of those um, situations. Also, um, even if your program, and some of you may be, I'm just looking at my notes over here, may be beginning to transition back to doing some services in person, 
Um, but you may have clients that are at risk of, um, you know, if they were to get sick, um, they're at risk, so they may prefer to continue on with phone or video. Um, or uh, you yourself may not, you know, be able to do in-person services because of health reasons. So it looks like we're going to be doing this for a while, one way or another. So when meeting in person, right, it's often easier to experience um, that the basis of our work is about a human-to-human -human connection, okay? And the phrase social distancing, really, I think of it as um, physical distancing. So we certainly can connect socially with others without being physically with them. So, um, you know, and obviously, thank goodness we have technology to go to do this now versus 100 years ago when they had the Spanish flu pandemic, that uh, wasn't the case. So we still are able to connect with others, and we're gonna talk about how to do that in meaningful ways, even though we're not in the same physical space. So engagement, what, what am I talking about when I say that? Um, I think you know the therapists and supervisors on the call are, are very used to this term, but um, not all of you may know exactly what we're talking about here. So we got some good old definitions. So engaging, is the process of establishing a mutually trusting and respectful, helpful relationship. Now that comes from the motivational interviewing um, book by Miller and Rolnick. So um, that process of mutually trusting. And I like the fact that they use helping relationship because we're all helpers on the call. You'll notice that I'm going to kind of jump around between calling us providers, helpers, workers. Uh, what else do I call us? I think that that covers it. I'm also, you'll notice, using the word client a lot, or you will notice that. Um, you may be more comfortable using the word consumer or member. Um, I'll also mix it up, those we help, those we serve, those we work with. So, um, so just to be clear, um, some people don't have, love the word client, some people don't like it, and depending on your role, you may you know, be very much used to using a different um, terminology. Okay, so engagement. This helping relationship that we are establishing with the people we serve can be referred to in different ways. So therapists will, you know, typically call it a therapeutic alliance, but it's also a working alliance, a client-worker relationship. It's this bonding between you and the person that you're helping. And then engagement and building rapport go together. So in to establish that engagement with the client, that working relationship, um, we do that by building rapport. What do we mean by rapport? Well, Wikipedia is a great source for um, interesting definitions. So it talks about um, rapport being a close and harmonious relationship in which the people or groups concerned are in sync with each other, and aligned, joined, understanding each other's feelings or ideas, and they, they communicate smoothly. Now that's ideal, right? But that's what we're working towards, building that in sync um, relationship so that uh, we kind of get them and they get us. And that, uh, you know, takes a little doing. So the relationship between the person seeking help, the client, and you, the person providing the service, whatever your role. And then the classic definition for engagement comes from Forster's Research 2008, creating deep connections with clients that drive decisions, interaction, and participation over time. 
So it's crucial to providing effective treatment. So we have our engagement with the client as a helper, right? We're helping them. And we have the client's engagement in their treatment. So we're helping them. That's the person-to-person -person engagement. And then their engagement in the, the, their treatment, the work that we're doing with them to address their symptoms or behaviors that are problematic or, and or their uh, functioning, life functioning. So ways that we define um, engage, that somebody's engaged in their treatment, they would be regularly attending sessions, sharing and participating in those sessions. So that client provider, that person-to-person -person engagement, really sets the foundation for the client's engagement in their treatment. So the client's engagement in treatment grows from that client helper connection. Of course, they, they um, you know, have their own motivation. Some clients aren't motivated for treatment when they come to us. They've been ordered to come to treatment or coming to please somebody else. But we can really build that, that relationship with them to help grow their engagement in their treatment. Okay, so why the heck is all this so important? Well, um, probably most people uh, on the line know this, but it really is astounding that it's the number one predictor of progress in mental health treatment, that therapeutic alliance or working relationship. And this is a real, um, when I was in graduate school learning to be a therapist, this was a huge relief as I got closer to starting my practicum work and working with clients. Because I started to feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything and I'm going to be, you know, supposed to help people. Um, and so knowing that if I could just establish that connection, build that rapport, that that would be a huge, uh, you know, really be uh, important for being able to actually help them. The stronger the connection, the more likely you can really be effective in working with the client and that their um, progress will uh, be beneficial. So this relationship begins right at the very first meeting, right when we uh, have our first connection with them, whether it's in person or over the phone or internet. So many of those who seek mental health services drop out of treatment, unfortunately, and of those who do leave, 70% or so leave just after one or two sessions. So that is uh, you know, it's a big deal to try to connect as soon as we can. Now, we don't know all the reasons why people drop out after the first or second session. Maybe they um, got a lot out of the first or second session and they feel much better and they don't feel like they really need services. Um, maybe they shared a lot and they feel um, vulnerable and they don't come back. We don't know all the reasons, but, um, but we're more likely to be able to see them continue on if we can um, really establish uh, some rapport as soon as possible. Engagement also, so we're talking here about engaging with brand new clients that we just met for the first, new to us, people that we've just met for the first time, and you know those uh, who we've been seeing for a while. So for new clients, of course, that first impression matters. Those first moments really set the tone for your working relationship so that you can help them achieve their goals for treatment. And with your, your, our ongoing clients, we really want to um, continue to build on the relationship we've already established to help them to be actively engaged in their treatment. Now, this goes without saying, um, no matter 
you know, if we're doing sessions in person or over the phone or video. But in this era of COVID-19, with our ongoing clients, you may have, there may be some disruption when we switched over to uh, remote services on top of the fact that the reason we did so is because this enormous event is happening this pandemic okay so um, it could be uh, it could have been a rocky switch or it could be continuing to be a rocky switch it may have been pretty smooth in the beginning but now as time goes on it can be getting a little tricky so we're going to be looking at um, engagement with ongoing clients from several different angles and all the different challenges that can come up that you may have experienced. Now this slide is just sort of an overview just to orient ourselves to um, the engagement skills that we're gonna be getting into. So engagement skills include attitudes, approaches, actual behaviors. Um, these are all things that help prom promote that um, engagement with the client, the therapeutic alliance, during sessions or interactions. So some of you on the call, because of your different roles, you might not call these sessions, right? It's just an interaction when you're meeting with the client. But um, so let's just look at these briefly, and we're gonna be going into some of them more deeply today, and then some of them even more deeply on Friday. So the overarching idea um, is that the person's well-being is important to us. Your well-being is important to me. You may be explicitly stating that, which I think is great, but in all of these attitudes, skills, and behaviors around engagement, that's the, the vibe, for lack of a better word, that's coming across. So things, ways this might look. Um, a warm welcome, not just the first time you've ever interacted with them if it's a new client, but ongoing services every time that you meet with them. You're happy to see them. Unconditional positive regard. We'll talk about that quite a bit. Um, this is that idea that we, um, you know, we are, have good feelings towards them regardless of what they might share with us that they might feel ashamed of or embarrassed, things like that. So, in other words, it's kind of like a loving feeling, unconditional positive regard, like unconditional love. Um, we typically don't use that word professionally, but I, that's what it really is pointing to. Empathic, non-judgmental stance. So having that empathy and, again, not judging. And this really opens things up for a client who might feel ashamed of, of a reason they're coming to us or their symptoms or some problematic behaviors. Conveying respect with our tone and the words that we choose. Okay, respect is a big one that we're going to talk about today. And the use of open-ended questions. And the reason this is included as a, an engagement skill is because this really invites clients to share with us and to go on. And, um, you know, uh, that really can be a, a healing experience just in and of itself, especially if we're listening with that genuine interest, and that's, you know, what we want to be doing. So in real life, we don't always uh, have people asking us open-ended questions and really listening with genuine interest as we describe our experience. And so being able to have that focused attention of a helper is very uh, healing and really can help us connect and engage with our clients. And providing positive reinforcement and praise, of course, is going to help us connect with our clients. 
um, summarizing the sessions and planning for the next one. Now that seems like a very logistical, um, practical thing to do, and it is, but it also helps to develop that rapport. Um, one of the reasons is because if we're summarizing what the interaction, the content of the interaction and what um, decisions might have been made and what the plan is for the next time we meet, that really shows the care that we've taken, taken to really understand uh, what they shared and, and make sure that we got it right. That also shows caring. Anytime we're showing caring to some, to anybody, that makes us, you know, makes uh, people feel warmer towards each other. Um, and this helps build that therapeutic relationship, that working alliance. And then letting them know, again, it sounds simple, just simply letting them know that you look forward to the next meeting. You know, just like the warm welcome. Simple, but very powerful. So we're going to look at empathy right now as an important approach and attitude that sort of is uh, overarching all of these things that we just went through. So Carl Rogers, for those of you who might not know, is the, I guess you would call him the grandfather or the developer of person, the person-centered approach of therapy, client-centered approach. Uh, so he has this, there are just tons of wonderful quotes by Carl Rogers on this website that I have the link there at the bottom regarding empathy and the work uh, that we do, the healing work that we do with those we serve. So in this, he said, this really captures so much of what we're going to talk about. So empathy is the listener's effort to hear the other person deeply, accurately, non-judgmentally. Empathy involves skillful, reflective listening that clarifies and amplifies the person's own experiencing and meaning without imposing the listener's own material. So hearing the other person, accuracy, that non-judgmental approach, reflective listening, clarifying, making sure that we're focused on their experience and their meaning. All of this really opens us up to, it's talking about being open is how I see it. And this really helps to establish that connection. Another quote that I didn't include on the slide I want to share with you because I think it's so wonderful. Um, and it speaks to what we've just previously talked about. He says, to my mind, empathy is in itself a healing agent. It is one of the most potent aspects of therapy because it releases, it confirms, it brings even the most frightened client into the human race. If a person is understood, he or she belongs. And I think that's so powerful because that's it. If people feel heard and listened to, People just want to be seen, and I think that, uh, I agree that that is very much um, a healing component of what we do. So let's take a moment, since we've heard these wise words of Carl Rogers, and I want you to think of a client, if, if you mind, who you've been seeing for a while and who's been a bit challenging for you to work with. Now, if everybody you're currently working with is, there's no challenge at all, then maybe you can think of somebody you've worked with in the past that it's been hard for you to work with, and for whatever reason. And then imagine what it might be like to be that person, to actually walk in their shoes. 
And then you can just quickly jot down or type down or just think however you want to do this. Nobody's going to see this. This is just for your own experience. As you think about what it would be like to be that person, to put yourself in their shoes, think about what are some thoughts or feelings that you might have had, that you might have being this person. What interests you? This person what makes you excited what annoys you as this person what makes you feel proud as this person how do you feel about feeling proud as this person what makes you sad what makes you mad so I'll just give you a moment to answer that first little bit there Think back to the things that they share or frustrations they seem to be experiencing. Okay, so now thinking you're still that person, you're in their shoes, how do you view, view yourself? So if I'm being Bob, my client Bob, how do I, Bob, view myself? What thoughts or feelings do I have towards myself? And what thoughts or feelings do I have towards other people in general? How do I see the world or humanity? How does Bob or your client, how does he view your role? So if you are a case manager, how does Bob look upon case managers? What does he think about case managers? What do you think Bob thinks about you? What do you think Bob thinks about the mental health system? Even if you've never been explicitly told by Bob these feelings, maybe you can take a guess by being in his shoes. And then what do you as Bob, what do you want out of these uh, services that you're getting? from you as a nurse, case manager, etc. Now, if you're a supervisor on the call, you might not be working directly with clients right now, or you may be stepping in quite a bit. Or you may be, of course, working with, um, you know, your, your staff who are working with a client that they find challenging, so you can modify the exercise accordingly. I'll just give us one more minute to just kind of absorb that feeling of being that person. And what it's like for them. So thank you for doing that. Um, I'm wondering um, if anybody wants to share how you might have uh, what that experience was like, if you've ever gone there with this particular person or maybe with other people that you've worked with. So if you if you feel up for sharing, if you, you could put a, some, you could share in the chat box for us. How was that for you? Was it helpful? Was it, did you feel like you didn't want to do it? 
did it feel like, yeah, duh, I always put myself in the, the shoes of my clients, the people I work with. Does anyone have any experience doing the exercise they'd like to share or any insights? I will say that I found the exercise very grounding, like very recentering to remember in our practice. So thank you for that. Um, and then Lisa just shared that some of the behaviors that seem frustrating to me are likely arising from a feeling of this person feeling devalued and unworthy. Yeah, and thank you so much, Lisa. I think that can be the experience for a lot of folks that we see, especially, um, and I'm guessing that many of you on the call work with people that have long suffered with severe mental illness, um, with discrimination that can go along with that and or be separate from that. A lot of the people that we work with have been in the field for a long time. You might be their seventh case manager in four years. A lot of people have been let down by the mental health system. I'm wondering if any, um, if, they, uh, if people have, have experienced that. That can make it difficult to engage with clients and it can make it difficult for clients to trust us. I know I use this exercise in trainings I do. They're in-person trainings, um, so it's a little different, but um, people have shared, you know, just realizing, oh my gosh, no wonder, realizing the trust issue um, can be really a big barrier. And when they've done the exercise, they've had some sort of insights as into how they might be able to bridge um, feelings of mistrust with that client. And so things that they might find frustrating, like resistance on the client's behalf, they feel um, less frustrated after doing the exercise and have fresh ideas about ways they might be able to engage with the, that particular client. And Lisa added on about behaviors that may seem aggressive, may also be arising from their sense of anxiety or not feeling like they'll get their needs met without being imposing. Ah, yeah. Like those clients that are worried that they're bothering us, maybe? Or the only way is to be the, the loudest in the room to be heard because they haven't been heard before, sadly. Mm-hmm. That's a very common experience, especially when people have felt like they have been treated poorly for years and years and years and years. I mean, that's what we're experiencing right now with the, the phenomenal uprising in not just our country, but in the world. It's that, you know, please listen and do something about this situation. So, yeah, that can um, happen with our when we're working with our clients as well. All right, well, thank you very much. I, I'll move on to the next unless there's any other comment that anybody. My ex last experience was with the client that had more than less to say because he always being cut off by other people when he's trying to share and they think that because of his mental illness that it, it's not significant. So he's very, very quiet, but I, tried to do the best to let him know that without his 
um, communication, I won't know very much. So he uh, starting to, you know, accept what I'm saying, and I'm kind of building rapport with this young man that he's getting more, I say, more involved in sharing or this his point of view. That's great. It's like you get you you explicitly reached out to give him permission to please share what it is he's experiencing and wants to share to encourage him to do that. Did I get that right? Yes, you got that right. I, but I asked him for permission to <laughs> to say what I had to say to open him up, like using motivational interviewing techniques. Excellent. Yeah, put him, you put him in the driver's seat, and you let him decide. Is he going to share or not? And that automatically makes him probably more likely to take the courage and to dip his toe in the water and share a little bit. Yeah, that must be very frustrating to, you know, especially if you're a person who has a history of sharing things. Maybe you have, you know, a severe mental illness that makes it difficult for you to speak in an organized or, or coherent way. And other people stop trying to understand. They stop listening. They shut the person down. It, you can imagine how that would make you feel like what you have to say is not important at all. Okay, so what I want to share was a client that I've been working with. It's been, it wasn't, hasn't been a long time, but it's been about three months. And it actually been when this started with the time of the COVID-19. And it was, uh, she's new to this area, came from Northern California. So she didn't know much about L.A. And so she got into the wrong field as far as what the different with the men, you know, in the streets making extra money, whatever it came with. So yeah. she got tired of that. Um, she went into one of the, um, our, our team put her in like a, one of the um, interim housing, the emergency shelters. I mean, the crisis housing. And uh, she didn't stay there for a while because of how things were operating there. Uh, but to make a long story short, um, she, um, was started, you know, uh, and I haven't really been able to actually physically see her, but I gave that report of just talking with her on the phone, and she had shared with me a lot of what was she's been going through with, like, sex trafficking and things like that just by being here in California and how I had able to her, motivated her to to want to go to the, one of the emergency shelters where she tried going three times and said she didn't like the area, she wouldn't go, and I kept, you know, convincing her to go try it she ended up going in and she was in there like maybe four weeks we just got her out last week and put her in one of the um uh the bridge homes the bridge housing and she uh, i linked her to a homeless fsp she still contacted me saying how greatly she is and i had to put myself in her footsteps because of what everything she's going through she's still being motivated and pushing herself and i commended her on that and just on yesterday she was just saying how the men there, you know, because she didn't have issue with the men, how they're like want to date, want to whatever. And she said she had to go inside the office and tell one of the case managers what was going on, what she didn't like. Like she's not here for dating. She's here to get her life in order. She's looking for housing. She wants mental health. She's and not to date. They're on the same level as her. So I commended her on taking that step and then realizing a couple other women started coming through. I think that was uh, Friday. And then she was telling me today, a couple of women came through, and they eventually had that judgment put out. 
no one no one had stepped up to complain you know because they were just thinking that they needed they would they would get put out so So she's like leading yeah a leader now in her new uh she's been there since thursday what a strong person and yeah, I just commended her and she you know she calls me all the time and I, and she never met me. She said she wished I was her therapist, but I'm just a community health worker. But I'm told I'm here for her and, and my phone is always available. So Thank I you. just like I put myself in her shoes and feel comparative yeah. and motivate her to keep going and get keep being strong and she don't have to look back at her past. Thank you, know. you so much for sharing that story, Pamela. That's a beautiful um a beautiful illustration of how we can still really connect with people over the phone, not yes. even video, over I've the never phone, and what you really granted her, um, you know, that that power to, well, gave her permission to tap, you you helped her to tap into her own power, what a strong yes. person she is. She moved to the city during such a historical yes. time of change and went through so many things and now she's really on a trajectory upwards. So right. thank you and, so and much. And I commended her and she calls me like maybe every day. So I just want to throw it out. I don't want to take up too much time, but I wanted to share that, how you can really touch someone and you haven't even seen them. Isn't that something? Thank and you for me share. You're welcome and thank you so much for sharing and how it's spreading. It's like the pebble in the water. Yes. You, you uh, allowing her uh, you know, giving her the permission to really speak and really took the care and listened. Yes. How much of an effect that has. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good work. Dang. <laughs> you guys are doing such beautiful, beautiful work in this difficult time. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about cultural self-awareness, which both of your stories um, sort of highlight, which is um, – even though you didn't say it explicitly, um, it's coming through in what you're talking about. So this idea of cultural self-awareness, um, being aware of our own culture, really promotes our ability to connect with others. So um, it's very important that we examine our own cultural systems and identities and how they intersect within ourselves and with our clients. Every person, all of us, exists within our own unique constellation of cultural systems, right? And this influences how we see the world. So this influences how your client, you know, Omar and Pamela's clients that they shared about see the world, how we see the world, and then how does that intersect with our clients? Um, I, you know, it's important for us to do the work of identifying and challenging our own privileges, our own biases, stereotypical thinking, and our own blind spots. Um, this is an ongoing process, um, self-awareness. Um, and, you know, it's really highlighted, I kind of already touched on this, but the current worldwide uprising against systemic racism and injustice that we're all experiencing has really, um, you know, this, these are injustices that have been around for centuries. It's astounding, and it really seems to reflect this growing worldwide experience of cultural self-awareness um, of humanity that seems to be accelerating around the world. Um, I think it's so interesting. Um, it's a beautiful and remarkable and um, deeply also upsetting time, but it really, um, I think, ultimately is a good thing because people are becoming much more aware of their own privileged biases, stereotypical thinking, and blind spots. And 
you know, it's, it's time. Cultural humility promotes engagement. So by cultural humility, we mean that not understanding we don't know everything about, you know, every culture or any culture or any, because every person is an intersection of multiple cultures, um, you know, we want to have a stance of being curious about um, our client, understanding um, where they're coming from. So cultural humility is an attitude, it's an approach, it's a process, ongoing. It's a way of being humble and respectful towards others, towards our clients especially, and being actively open and willing to learn, being culturally curious, not making assumptions. It's not possible to know everything about a person based on what music they like, where they live, what, what neighborhood they grew up in, how many years of school they had, what color their skin is, what language they speak, what food they eat. We can't assume just because, um, you know, of some external factor that we know everything about the person. And then one way that um, really helps us to build rapport when we're working with others is using their terminology and the language, the terms of phrase that they use. You know, we'll pick up on the way that they're putting things. That, that reflects their cultural perspective. So when we do that, it really shows that we're listening. It conveys respect, um, our interest, and really can build rapport and understanding. The importance of the tone, quality, and experience of the relationship with those we work with cannot be overestimated. Treating people with dignity and respect and as experts in their own lives should always be our standard of practice, our guiding rule, regardless of the circumstance. So really coming to others with the respect of their experience and providing them that dignity, which was reflected in both of the stories that, you, uh, that were shared. So some ways to set the stage for engagement um, at the first meeting, and really throughout treatment, but I'm going to highlight the first meeting here. Um, just simply saying, how can I be of help? This can really help to realign any inherent power differential. So by power differential, I mean that if somebody's seeking our services, they're looking to that's a vulnerable position and they're looking to us as you know some kind of an expert to help them you know to help them to provide them this service that's a power differential so when we turn it around and say how can i serve you how can i be of help to you that can help kind of balance that out a little bit and then really accepting and meeting the person where they are we'll talk about that on the next slide in a little depth I do want to just say that we want to keep in mind that when we have this first meeting with the client, very often they're feeling a little bit anxious about it. And so um, we can keep that in mind and that will help, help us, I think, to, um, you know, put ourselves in their shoes right off the bat and do what we can to really help relieve any kind of nervousness they might have, particularly if we're meeting with, with them now in this world of remote services over the phone or video that might add to their anxiety. So what about this idea of accepting and meeting the person where they are? So some ways to set the stage. Okay, so here's some do's and don'ts about accepting where they are. We do, like I mentioned, want to speak their language, use their terminology, use their phrases. It shows that we get them. 
list, and it's also, it shows that we're taking the time to understand their perspective on whatever their experiences that they're sharing with us. Listening without judging, just taking it in, seeing it from their perspective, joining with them in that. Explaining things when needed. So maybe we have to take the time to explain um, a concept or a terminology, like maybe, you know, a consent. Uh, what does consent for services mean? Things like that. Um, but only, you know, when needed. We're really looking to them as the expert in their life to tell us uh, what's going on with them. And asking permission first. Um, like in Omar's story, this really reinforces that it's their choice. They are in the driver's seat. Is it okay if I, before we ask um, them, you know, I wanted to ask you a little about a bit about what your housing situation is. Is it okay if I ask some questions about that? It's a very respectful approach. And then some don'ts about uh, a don't, some don'ts regarding this is not challenging people too soon. We just met them. We're, we want to build that trust and rapport. So now isn't the time to start challenging them. And don't be quick to provide solutions either. Just really take the time to listen to what the situation is. We have time to problem solve with them later. And not asking questions in a way that could trigger feelings of shame or incompetence. So if somebody's sharing with you, um, you know, that they lost their ID card and that they need to be connected to social services so you could help them get a replacement, we won't want to ask questions like, you know, we could ask, well, um, you know, can you share with me what you've done in the past to get a card or, you know, what has been helpful or what do you think would be helpful rather than saying things like, well, how did that happen? How did you lose your card? Like, you know, that makes a person feel ashamed that they lost their card, right? And I know these are all basic things that we know, but sometimes it helps to kind of really explicitly think of, of these because we may accidentally be asking questions in a way that might make somebody feel bad, especially as um, you know, many of us are overtired and uh, at our limits right now. So some other ways to set the stage for engagement at the first meeting, letting them, and throughout really, letting them know that their well-being is important to you. Like we talked about, stating your commitment to providing high quality services despite the unusual circumstances that it's over the phone or on video, if you're able to do video, um, you know, making sure that they understand that, um, you know, they may come to you feeling like, oh, now my um, therapy or um, my appointments with the nurse don't really count because they're just over the phone. And that's not the case. You're really committed to providing high quality services regardless. And this is important too with um, clients that are used to maybe seeing you in person, those ongoing clients. And reassuring them that you still uh, take the work with them very seriously. And then something that can be really helpful as you switch over to remote services is to collaborate to make a predictable schedule. In this um, time uh, of, you know, our, of history, there's so much unpredictability happening. So anything we can do to make things more predictable is going to help our clients. So if we can talk to work with them to establish a set schedule for you know maybe we're going to meet every you know tuesday at three o'clock and we're going to meet for exactly 45 minutes um you know thereabouts like setting up how long it's going to be and all that helps the client to plan and have some kind of um 
stability in this time of uncertainty. Same day and time, if possible, is great. If you can't do that, then, then that's okay. But even just having that discussion of a plan and really working together with them, what's going to work best for them? Again, it's that joining helps to build rapport. So I keep mentioning remote services. So let's just get some of these telehealth basics out of the way. So telehealth um, is defined by the World Health Organization as healthcare services that use telecommunications and virtual technology to provide care outside of a traditional healthcare facility setting. So outside of a clinic or hospital, for instance. So this includes care related to mental health, that's us, that's provided over the phone and via video, video conferencing like Zoom, um, or whatever your agency uses. Appropriate consent would need to be obtained, of course, when we're using telehealth methods. So, polling question, what modalities of telehealth do you currently use? Mostly phone, now that we're in this phase. Mostly phone or mostly video? Or about equal amounts, phone and video, or none? You're doing all in person. Yeah, so 75% of you are doing this mostly on the phone. All right, and about 13% are doing half phone and half video, and 13% are doing mostly video. That verifies my hunch, which is that we are mostly doing this without a face. And there's some good things about that, which we'll talk about here, without being able to see their face. Um, that's not always the worst thing. Um, if you are now providing most services using the phone or, or video, how long ago did you make the switch? So how long ago did you make the switch to telehealth? So zero to one month ago would be if you just started doing it since mid-May. One to two months ago would be you started in somewhere between mid-May and mid-April. Two to three months ago would be if you started sometime between mid-March and mid-April. And then if you started before mid-March, you're a veteran at this point. <laughs> That'd be more than three months ago. Okay, so most of you started somewhere between mid-March and mid-April when a lot of the shutdown happened. So that was 70, 74%. Okay. Thank you very much. That verifies uh, what I thought. So you've been doing this a while now. So you have had a lot of experience with troubleshooting over the phone, um, but we'll see if we can um, address um, continued or new challenges that might be coming up with that. So what equipment is needed, of course, we know this, just real quickly, for a phone, the client is gonna need, and ourselves, either a landline or a standard cell phone or uh, a smartphone, uh, but I think a lot of time it's a standard cell phone and they need some sort of phone service or data plan with sufficient minutes. Now, a lot of our clients that, and I think we can easily forget this sometimes, a lot of our clients might have, um, they buy their minutes and so they don't have just unlimited minutes to use. So we need to keep that in mind when we're planning how long our sessions are going to be with them and how often and do what we can to support them and maybe help them to be able to find resources that will give them, um, you know, so they can afford more minutes if needed. Um, 
And then some form of earphones or a microphone is really uh, wonderful for both the phone and video conferencing. And I'm sure you guys already know this, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but it really makes a big difference as far as privacy goes. Because if I'm a therapist and I'm working with a client over the phone or computer, and I have someone, a roommate that lives with me, um, and I don't, you know, I have, don't have uh, a headset on, um, that person could potentially hear everything that you're saying. Also, the, the roommate would be able to hear what I'm saying. Um, so we want to make sure that we have privacy on both ends for ourselves and that we're reassuring our clients that what we're talking, our voice is not being heard by somebody that lives with us. Um, also, if you're using an earphone or a microphone um, for either video or for the um, telephone, if you're, I'm sorry, if you're using some kind of a headset or earbuds, it really can, um, people will tend to talk softer. And so a lot of the clients you work with might live in a boarding care or a sober living house and have, maybe they are able to get their room to themselves by having their roommate leave during the sessions, right? Um, but they might have thin walls and might be, you know, overheard by somebody in the next room. So if they're using earbuds, um, then they're less likely to, they're able to talk softer and be able to hear you better, and therefore there's less of a likelihood of them being overheard through a, a thin wall. Um, so for video conferencing, smartphone with camera works. We all know, know the equipment, I think, but keeping in mind internet service and connection are also important, not just service, but the connection. Um, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than a call or a, um, a video chat or video conferencing call being dropped. Um, okay, so some advantages of using telehealth, more flexible schedule, some may for ours and theirs, so it might be a lot easier to find times that we can meet with our clients. Um, some of the clients might be more likely to attend sessions due to fewer barriers. I'm sure you've experienced this with some. Maybe some of your clients have mobility issues or transportation isn't the safest. Maybe they go through a neighborhood where they're not safe um, to come to see you at a clinic setting, and now they don't have to worry about that. Um, some people have uh, mental health symptoms that are exacerbated by having to come to the clinic, like anxiety in crowded places. Or some people might feel stigma about having to go to a clinical setting. And so they might be thrilled with having their sessions remotely. Um, consistent research findings over the past 10 years have shown that the quality of services provided over the phone or video are comparable to those provided in person, which is really great. Um, you know, and I, to me, it was a little surprising. I think um, there's also some research that points to um, this idea that a lot of times, if there are concerns about providing services over telehealth, it's often the provider that's concerned and that clients seem to not care as much about it or they're not worried about it. So um, that's emerging research, but I thought that was really interesting. And I think that that, you know, we do talk a lot about it as providers, and I do know that there are clients who say, I don't care either way as long as I can, I can talk to my, you know, mental health worker or whoever it is. Um, Johns Hopkins University, uh, I'm sorry, Johns Hopkins study 
want to get this right. So um, what this was was that they in 2012 they had um, this research was released that they had at Johns Hopkins there was a study done with 90 over 98,000 participants. They found that individuals who were enrolled in the VA's telemental health services were less likely to be hospitalized for mental health conditions, and that the telehealth patients saw a over 26% decrease in the number of hospital admissions and days of acute hospitalization from 2006 to 2010. So it was very, the study showed that it was very effective, and that's a very large sample size. Um, there are, of course, many, many challenges of using telehealth. I've put three big ones up here. Um, so difficulty finding a private space for the session, missing visual cues, not being able to see the client's facial expressions, or nonverbal communications, like, you know, the way that they're gesturing, um, or maybe some nervous behavior that, you know, maybe they're, they're talking in a smooth way, but their body is belying the fact that maybe there's some anxiety there and we can't see that if we're over the phone or even on video if it's below where the screenshot is. And this happens for both people, so they can't see, um, you know, if we're on the phone, um, they're not able to see our uh, nonverbal communication as, as well. Um, so often the way that we're taking in information is conveyed through um, vocally, through little sounds that we make, um, sighs, breathing, the changes in our um, speech, and we'll talk about that on Friday more. Um, so video too, if people aren't used to seeing themselves on screen, they could be self-conscious that they may share less, they may feel distracted or upset, um, so that can be a barrier. Um, for video too, um, so I just kind of talked about this, but if you're on video and you're only seeing the person's head and they're only seeing your head, um, that's not always ideal. So the best would be to include your upper body. Like I have some of my upper body showing on the screen right now. Um, so you can see some of my gestures. Um, also, I've, I've had, I've heard clients share that they had a problem with video conferencing because they didn't like seeing their, their therapist's face so big and up close. So it might be a good idea to back, back away from the camera if you're able to. Um, I thought that was interesting and it's come up more than once. Um, okay, so um, clients, uh, again, may also feel that telehealth services um, aren't real, that they're not quality services. So that can be a barrier and they may stop coming um, during this time of the pandemic. Um, some clinical challenges, although it can be very effective, it's not always a good fit clinically. So um, you may work with clients that are really struggling around um, trauma and need some significant support there or with substance use. I know we had at least one person who's a substance use specialist on the call. Um, recent crisis or hospitalization. So in some cases, it's clinically sound maybe to be able to meet them at least a little bit in person if possible. And then mental health symptoms can be exacerbated by technology. Like um, if you're working with people who are suffering from um, delusions or paranoid thoughts around technology, it can be really upsetting for them to even contemplate having a session um, over the phone or video. They may worry that, you know, they're being spied on through the technology 
or tracked somehow. Um, some cultural considerations for using telehealth. So level of comfort with um, technology. Um, these are all just some examples of the many cultural factors that we all, um, you know, ha have. So, um, so some people are really comfortable with technology, others aren't. And we don't want to make any assumptions. I think there's like a stereotype that older people aren't comfortable with technology and, you know, anybody under 40 is a whiz. But we don't want to assume that. We always want to check in and see how the client feels and make the decision of what modality we're going to use with them. You know, they're deciding uh, it's their treatment. We're, um, you know, working with them to make the decisions. Age cohorts kind of go into that. Um, again, we don't want to make any assumptions about their level of technology or how they feel. Another interesting thing about age cohorts that we might not think of is that, um, like, I grew up um, in the 70s where, like, when I was in middle school and high school, we all talked on the phone for hours and hours and hours, talked on the phone. Whereas somebody that grew up a couple decades after me, they, uh, as a teenager, did a lot of interacting with their peers by texting on a phone. So they, I, I've noticed that a lot of times people from that age cohort might not, um, you know, be comfortable actually talking on the phone. So they might have a, so some young adults you might be working with might prefer the video to the, the phone. And similarly, if you're working with older adult, adults, they might very much prefer the phone and feel a lot more connected to you than using video um, for that reason, just because of the experience that they've had. And they have skill, they have listening skills that maybe younger generations might not have because they have all those years of experience of talking on the phone like actual talking, speaking, socioeconomic status factors, and of course, because not everybody has the equipment or the cellular data minutes um, to be able to connect with telehealth, and then hearing impairments and limitations. Um, you know, if somebody has a hearing limitation, um, they might definitely prefer video because they can do a little bit of lip reading because, uh, lip, you know, we all do lip reading, whether we're aware of it or not. It helps us to hear better. It might be easier for them. Or conversely, they might prefer the phone because a lot of times, if, you know, you can have the experience of the person being right in your ear when you're on the phone if you have a good connection. Um, vision impairment. We want to make sure that we're checking in with our clients about what their situation is if we're going to be doing video sessions with them and they have a vision impairment. Um, we want to check in so that we're aware of the screen size. So if they have like a little smartphone, and they might not be, and they're doing video conferencing with you, they might not be able to see your facial expressions well at all. Or there might be a lot of pixelation in the, um, you know, the screen that makes it hard for them to see. So they may definitely prefer to do a phone session. Also, if somebody has a vision impairment, they will generally have very acute um, uh, hearing abilities. And so they may prefer the phone for that reason um, as well. Um, creating a safe environment. Um, so that's the key to building trust and creating a strong working alliance with our folks that we're working with. Key. We really want to make it as safe as possible. Like that, um, uh, 
uh, story that Omar shared where he really gave permission to this client to to share um, that's creating that's an example of creating a safe environment um, providing a positive secure and comfortable environment in which the client feels safe and heard privacy and confidentiality really ensuring that um, the client understands the limits of confidentiality and that we have a setting that's private um, we'll talk about how this switches over to phone and video in a second the client um, we want to make sure that they feel safe to share without being judged so that non-judgmental approach um, that unconditional positive regard comes in there and uh, so that they'll naturally feel more inclined to actively participate in their treatment and stay engaged in treatment not drop out so how do you or did you create a safe space when meeting with clients in person maybe I know some people would try to put people at ease by offering them a, a glass of water for instance so we have uh, Lisa mentioned eye contact listening intently and repeating back what she hears Denise has offering water or asking if the temperature is comfortable Christina also said water and a snack when they show up in the lobby. I definitely like to see that they chose where we met or sat if we didn't have a private office to meet in. Excellent. Yeah, the in-person being able to have options for where the client might want to sit is super important. I worked with um, uh, a, a client young client who was you know she had a lot of um, recent um, violent trauma experiences and, and um, had been shot at recently and so she and, and multiple times in her life and so I uh, didn't realize that I should be offering her a seat with her back against the wall and it took her three sessions of us meeting before she spoke up and said you know I really need to I can't sit in this chair for these sessions. I have to always have my back against the wall and see every entrance, exit, you know, window door. And um, I learned my lesson after that. I always made sure that I had lots of options. So that's an example. And Lisa just also mentioned expressing gratitude for them coming to the session. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, so those attending skills, of listening, reflecting back, ensuring that we've got it right, and expressing gratitude, it's great because those are easily trans translated when, and many of the things we do to create a safe space are, are adaptable for the phone or video. So we can do that. There are other things like not, you know, offering up a place to sit or a glass of water that, you know, just kind of go out the window if we're not meeting in person. Um, but we can say things and do things that will help them to feel comfortable in the same way. Anything else? If you let the client um, ask for permission to close the door or leave the door open while you're doing a session, um, that make them feel more comfortable. That, and you let them know about the, the HIPAA, that it's confidential. It's not going to be shared with no one but the doctor and maybe whoever else on the team be honest about um, that factor. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Omar. Yeah, that's a great point. 
really, and it and it shows again putting it. So the overarching um, uh, idea there with what you're sharing is asking permission, which was a theme in your other uh, the other discussion that we had. Really, again, putting it onto them. That really is uh, helpful for a client to create that space that this is a an opportunity for them to um, connect with you and trust you. And that takes time. We're not expecting them to trust us right off the bat, but when we ask for their permission or ask what their preference is like that, it's really going to help. So, um, so when we're doing this with telehealth sessions or interactions, um, you know, we of course are going to do things like reviewing that consent for telehealth. That's going to help them to help to foster a sense of safety and comfort because they kind of know what it is, what the risks and the, um, the limitations of telehealth modalities are. So that's going to be important. And then brainstorming with them. Now, this is a great opportunity to join with them and build that like in sync rapport is to figure out with them ways that they can have privacy and security while they're talking to you. Too, meaning that nobody's going to walk in, nobody's going to overhear them. So, um, and ensure, reassuring them that you have the similar situation. Um, having covered windows is good because it can help them stay focused. And also, if your client lives in an area where there's a lot of foot traffic right outside and they have a window, that people might see them on the phone and that might be um, upsetting to them or uh, make them take them out of the focus of the session. Taking steps to limit um, interruptions other ways, um, if they're comfortable with putting a sign on the door. And for both people to turn off notifications. I think there's nothing um, more um, disruptive than if you're in a, if you're a client and you're meeting with your, um, you know, the nurse or, or the doctor or the uh, case manager and they take a phone call in the middle of the session. Um, or just having notifications go off or stopping to check your phone when you get a notification. So if this is for us as well as them. We want to turn off those notifications and really um, show the respect and the safety of the situation. Um, collaborating on how together with how you're going to deal with the distractions that come up in this uh, situation being online or over the phone. So the garbage truck, the barking dog, um, also, if the call gets dropped, what are you going to do? If the video gets dropped, what's your plan? So if you, you know, this is probably inevitable that this is going to happen at some point if you're working with a client. So deciding ahead of time, are you going to wait like a minute and then you call the client or would the client call you back or how are you going to manage that? And then what do you do if, the, if you still can't get connected? So having that plan in place, Working together to decide that right off the bat really helps um, build that relationship and um, builds trust. Ensuring your camera setups for, uh, is set up for adequate lighting and a neutral background. So um, I don't really have a neutral background. If I was working directly with clients, which I'm not right now, I would probably turn my table so I have a plain wall behind me. Because, you know, a client would be surmising all kinds of things about what, you know, what my living room looks like. So you want to have a neutral background, if at all possible, and make sure that you're, you have enough lighting so that the client can see your face. If you're, you have a big, bright window right behind you, 
your face will be in shadow and they won't be able to see your expressions. And that's very important for them to be able to see that if you're on video. Um, it, and, you know, if a, you know, giving the option for a client, to, uh, showing them how they can minimize their image on the screen if they find it distracting or upsetting. Um, there's some research. I, I, I don't know what this research was exactly. But I read it in some article in a magazine or newspaper recently, but it, it mentioned that a huge percentage of people or that most people spend like a huge percentage of time in a video chat looking at their own image rather than the person they're talking to. So that's going to be a barrier to connecting if they're distracted by their own image. So you might suggest that or it might not bother them at all. Um, and then practitioners might consider using a brief grounding exercise to begin sessions. So, um, and anybody on the call can do a grounding exercise. I'm going to um, walk us through one at the beginning of um, Friday's um, presentation. But this, if you're not familiar, but this is just a very simple, you can do it in one minute, two minutes, but it can help create a shared space with the client. So um, it can draw focus into the session. It can establish that sense of being together, even though you're, you know, not physically together and take a moment to really um, shut out the rest of the world so you can get to the important work that you do with them. Um, so, you know, you can have them take a couple deep breaths, have them focus their attention on like, you know, find all, find three red things that are in your field of vision or notice that your feet are on the floor, things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about that, but that can be um, a very helpful thing, especially in this time when a lot of people are feeling anxious, it can really ground um, them for the, and set the stage for having a productive session. Um, we're running out of time, so let's blend this into a Q&A anyway. So how do you create a safe space for phone sessions? Um, do you do any of the things we talked about or do you do other things that I haven't mentioned or for video conferencing? So what has worked really well for you and your clients? What I should say, but what I would say to, to that if I was to be in their, in their shoes, I would say something like, um, this phone call is confidential. I'm the only one on the line. There's no one around me. And uh, and I hope it's the same for you. That no one is listening to what you have to share with me. That's great. So reassuring them. And then what if they said, well, actually, there's a bunch of people um, just on the other side of the room. <laughs> what could you say? Is, can you find another uh, neutral place where no one's located? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there are clients who have been, you know, borrowing their roommate's car and sitting in a parked car, uh, not running, no key in the ignition on the phone. So we don't want any tickets. And we want people to be safe. But, you know, sometimes people have done that. Or um, I know people, if they're, in a, uh, if they're living in a communal setting, they'll sit in the corner of the room and have their back to the corner so they can see if anybody, nobody sneaks up on them and then they'll talk quietly. You know, people have had to get really creative during this time. And Lisa's been adding in some great points of, that you've just reinforced about going to your car, trying to minimize distractions in the environment when possible, um, and using more verbal cues on the phone. 
maybe more reflective statements of what they're saying more so than you would do in person. And um, Maribel has a great point of just acknowledging that it might be strange to meet via video conferencing or or doing this all in this format to kind of ease into yeah. it. Yeah, calling out the elephant in the room really, and this joins, I mean, we're, this is all new for all of us. So really acknowledging if it's awkward um, and checking in. I think it's really, I'm going to leave you with this. We're going to go into the details of reflecting and using verbal acknowledgement um, in some detail next uh, time. So thank you very much for those suggestions too, because those are really key to this. Those, it's like the crux of the full training really. But don't be afraid to check in with those you've been seeing over the phone and video. Even if you think it's been going well, we're three months in. Find out, you know, what if 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 uh, what's working for them and what's not working for them, and you might need to make some adjustments. I think it's important that we do that. And that shows how much, even if they are fine with it and they don't have any complaints, that shows that we're really caring and modifying the treatment to them and we're taking the time to ensure um, that we have, a, you know, a situation, uh, we're working the best that we possibly can. And again, this is going to help build that trust and rapport that's going to affect the work that you're doing with them. Thank you so much, everybody. I can't believe how quickly it got to be um, 2.30. I really look forward to seeing you on Friday. We talked about empathy being key, co-creating our safe space, and really building trust and rapport by collaborating and making adjustments along the way. Um, There's some references of what we've, uh, from what we've talked about today, and I included some links in the slides. I just want to thank you for your participation, for sharing, for all the hard work you're doing, even as you're going through much of the same experience. You're all doing a great job, and I really look forward to seeing you all on Friday at 1. So last time, as I mentioned, we reviewed those approaches and attitudes that foster engagement. So uh, whatever your role, you no doubt came into this field because you have a lot of compassion and empathy for people and want to help. And so that's what we were really kind of focusing on that piece of it, those attitudes and approaches, so that warm, welcoming, open environment, that empathy being non-judgmental, respectful, honoring the client's experience. They're the expert in their life. The cultural humility and self-awareness that goes along with that. And having genuine interest and care for their well-being, meeting them where they are. So let's now look at the actions, the behaviors and engagement skills that really sort of express these attitudes and approaches. We're going to start with attending behaviors because they're the crux of, of engagement, and what those look like when we're physically in, in person with a client providing a, a service. So we build rapport in person by using physical attending behaviors. So attending behaviors mean they're, they're the external indication of listening. Okay, it's the way that we show that we're really listening and paying attention to what a client is saying. And they, uh, attending behaviors encourage that the client goes on and shares and open, opens up. And it helps to build that trusting uh, uh, therapeutic relationship. So some physical indicators that we're listening and giving our full attention are, of course, making comfortable eye contact, um, nodding, right? 
go so that indicates that the client we want the client to go on and that we're, we're with them paying attention leaning in having an open posture and not looking around at other things not checking our phone or the, the clock on the wall um, the door looking out the window passers-by things like that so these are obvious things I think we all do with you know, before we came in this field, obviously, but explicitly in our field, we think of these as attending behaviors, and we really want to be um, cognizant of, of those. So, now, in person, this is, we're going to talk about how these would translate over the phone or video, but I just kind of want to mention um, other things that we when we're in person that we would not want to do that would not really show that we're listening carefully or that could be um, misunderstood as not listening so if you have like a nervous um so being self-aware is really important so if you have a nervous foot where you wiggle your foot okay so right now i'm wiggling my foot now i'm on video but you might be able to tell that there's something going on i don't know if you can tell that I seem squirmy, but you know we want to be careful that even if we're on video, because on video we can certainly nod, lean in, and have an open posture. But other distracting things can actually come across on video, even though we might not think they would. Um, so also being aware of our facial expressions when we're in person, we do this. We want to make sure that as we're listening, that we're we're aware of how. Um, what our expression is so some myself included some people will narrow their eyes when they're really paying attention and listening and that could be mistaken for being angry or glaring um, sometimes people hold their mouth really tight when they're listening okay so um, that can be misunderstood as that you're thinking about what you're going to say next or that you're kind of judging or disagreeing with what the person is saying now I mentioned these here because if you're doing these things in person there's micro expressions that we have and all these tiny little muscles that people can see when we're face to face that will help make the likelihood of a misunderstanding of our facial expression um, you know it, it, it will be less likely that people will misunderstand that but if we're on video we want to be extra aware of our facial expressions because those micro expressions get sort of glossed over or smoothed out over video because um, no matter you know how great streaming is it still isn't going to pick up all those little tiny changes and the visual still isn't going to pick up on those tiny little twitches that we as human beings are very attuned to so you want to be extra careful about um, Know how you're coming across to make sure that you're having an open facial expression as well as body language. Also, a sideways mouth is kind of an interesting one. Um, I learned this uh, at a seminar I went to a long time ago. Um, I guess there's research that shows that the side, sideways mouth like this can look like you're, or like this, can make it uh, appear that you don't that you're judging or you don't agree. Uh, one last thing about this attentive behavior. So if you're in person and you're taking notes, which many of you probably do, 
during the session, you know, the client can see that you're doing that and you talk to them about the fact that maybe you jot down things from time to time or depending on your role, maybe that's a big part of it if you're doing case management, for instance. But um, I've noticed that when we're on video, um, because we have the camera, you know, usually at the top of the screen in my case, um, this eye contact thing is sort of strange and we have what's called the Brady Bunch effect where even if we're um, looking, you know, at the client's image on the screen, like if I look over here right now and I look down, I can see, see a name here. But if I was talking to that person, he's probably getting this weird effect where it looks like I'm not really looking at him, like I'm just distracted by something else. So it's um, a good idea to move your camera, I mean, move the person's image when you're having a session, if you can, move their image so that it's near wherever your camera lens is on your um, device that you're using, if you're, this is of course for video. That way you can approximate this, uh, you know, the eye contact. Another thing that kind of goes along with it is back to the notes, if you're taking notes, and this happened to me the other day with a colleague, we were having a meeting and he was, uh, he was asking me for some thoughts. So I was sharing these thoughts and he was taking really good notes the whole time, most of the time. He would look up here and there, but even though I know that he's an, he was taking notes and he's an incredibly compassionate and attentive person, like, like more than most therapists that I know. And I mean, he really is. And we have a good relationship. We have a good rapport, but I still, felt funny after a while. It felt like he wasn't really paying attention to me. And so we want to be careful of that. Even if the client realizes you're taking notes, um, you know, just really making it clear that you realize that it might seem like you're not paying attention and really kind of talking that through, I think is really helpful because these little things can add up and make people feel not important. And that's exactly the opposite of what we want as we're building our rapport with Okay, so how do we adapt these physical behaviors for attending, showing that we're paying attention? How do we adapt those to phone or video? So we really, the key here is tuning in, really tuning in to being mindful and vocally responsive. So instead of using, so let's think about the phone right now, not video so much for a moment. So physically, we can do these attending behaviors, but we can still attend by using sound, our voice, not just words, but sounds that we make. So for instance, now we can use our voice with words or sounds by acknowledging, right? It's really important to acknowledge when somebody's talking. So in person, we do that with a nod. Um, I know Lisa mentioned last time that we would do that also, you know, by saying, uh-huh, mm -hmm, making small sounds. Um, and I know this is real obvious and, and we all know this, but there is sometimes this thing that happens when we're really paying careful attention to somebody over the phone and they can't see us, that we will sometimes fall very silent. And have you ever had that thing happen where you're having a conversation, it could just be even with a friend, and after a while you start to wonder if the call was dropped or if you just lost them, <laughs> if they're like, paying attention to their dog or something across the room. So we want to be sure that we're really um, being mindful to, um, to be present vocally. 
not interrupting necessarily, but you know, constantly, but just uh -huh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. small little sounds are enough. Um, again, that really helps the person to feel heard. It makes them feel like you're along with them. You, you haven't dropped off. Uh, and then our vocal nuances really reflect, those are the physical, they reflect the physical indicators of listening that can't be seen. So for instance, maybe we're talking on the phone to a client, we're having a session, we're really listening, and we're le we may even be leaning in, even though they're not there, to really get it. And we're really focused and concentrated. That might be reflected in the tone of our voice or the volume or a shift in, in our voice or how we're modulating our voice. So um, following along with shifts and changes in their tone or volume also help the client know that we're attending to what they're saying. And then with, you know, with video, I talked about placing the image near the camera. Another thing that happens on video is that um, if possible, you can pull the, your camera back so that your client can see more of your body than just your facial expression. So um, being able to see your hand gestures, if you're explaining things, you may or may not be a big hand gesture person. So it might not be as important you know, it might not seem as important for you to do that. So that's up to you. Everybody's different. But also talking with the client about, if possible, having them, you know, find the right distance from the camera so that you can see their facial expressions and that you can also see, um, you know, some of their body language. So because, you know, communication, so much of it is nonverbal. So being able to see, you know, sloping, if they're, you know, Sloping. If you have the, if they have the camera really tied up on their face, you might miss some other indicators of how they're feeling or what they're communicating. And there's a balance too, because you want to still be able to see the expressions of the clients on the client's face, and vice versa. You want them to be able to see your facial expressions and like we talked about, that's a little difficult over video because some of those tiny little nuances are lost. So you want to find that balance of close, uh, you know, how close the camera is and how far it is. And every client, with every client, it might be a little different. And just having that little problem solving discussion and playing around with it can be kind of fun and, you know, help to build the relationship as well. And it shows that you really care to make sure that, you, you know, get it right, that you, that you understand and, and are able to communicate with them as best as possible. So what helps us engage over the phone and video continues. So since much of communication is nonverbal, it's more important than ever to really listen closely to what they are sharing. So we always are going to be doing this, of course. We're going to be paying close attention to the content of what they're sharing, the terms they use which helps us to see their experience from their perspective and really understand, um, you know, what their experience is or whatever it is that they're describing to us. Um, but it becomes even, it becomes easier to do this, I think, when we're engaging over the phone because we don't have visual distractions. So oddly, it can be a lot, um, it can actually be really beneficial to not have um, visual input, to really connecting. Um, it can be easier to connect over the phone. 
Um, and then how they're sharing. Again, we, this is important all the time, but we're not just paying attention to how we're using our voice and following along with them, but changes, attending to changes in their voice, tones, sighs, breathing, long pauses. This can tell us a lot. And so we really want to tune in to what's going on with them. And again, follow along with that to show that we're right there with them. That helps build that rapport. And allowing, allowing time for them to respond to questions. So if we can't see the client and we're on the phone and there's this big long pause after we ask them something, we want to take the time to let them answer. Be, uh, you know, just like in person, we want to allow that dead space because they may be gathering their thoughts they may be having a difficult time emotionally and so they need a moment and so really just allowing for that and being um being open to that and then of course you know after a while if you're not hearing a response you would follow up but just you know it uh, i think it's easy to shorten those uh to, to have the urge to shorten those long uh periods of silence when we're over the phone and we can't see the person because it's harder to know exactly what's going on. Checking my notes to make sure I didn't miss anything here. And just a reminder, I mentioned this a little bit in part one, but um, for lighting, for being able to see a person's facial expressions, you can play around with, the, um, with your camera to make sure that you're lit in a way uh, that you're lit from the front so that your uh, face doesn't have a lot of shadows on it because that's going to make it harder if you're working over video for people to see um, small changes in your expressions or any changes. If you have a big light right behind you, your whole face will be in shadow. And then working with the client um, so that you so that you have enough light on their uh, face as well. So no facial cues, not being able to see the client, as I mentioned, is often better than, it can be better than bad visuals. So sometimes uh, if, for example, if the lighting situation for the client or for yourself on a given day just isn't gonna, gonna give you a lot of ability to see the expressions on their face, you may opt to just have that session over the phone. Um, because there is there's this idea that if you are taking in only uh, if you're only taking in what the person is saying and you're not you don't have the visual data distracting you it can actually be a lot more um, conducive to attuning to each other and building rapport it's almost especially if you have really good um, earbuds and they do too or some kind of a headset so that you can really hear those tiny little sounds it really can it fosters a sense of closeness that you might not get um, over video I think that sometimes we tend to think in this high-tech world that video is automatically going to be better and feel like it approximates um, you know because it does sort of approximate that we're having a session in person but as far as really uh, attuning to each other, it can actually be better over the phone. And since many, I think 
most of you said that most of your sessions right now are over the phone. Um, you may have experienced that or you may have been worried about that and maybe think of it in a different way now. Okay, so yeah, especially if you have a really good connection over the phone, then you can really hear more, uh, hear closely. So good old communication skills are, of course, a big part of building rapport with our clients always, but especially so, um, well, I, I mean, not especially so, but I think they're going to help you more over the phone and video because you can't see what's happening. So it, because again, so much of communication is nonverbal. So here, if you're on the phone, everything's verbal or sounds that you're making vocal. So, um, so reflecting back what the client is sharing to verify or ensure your understanding. So first off, you want to be sure that you know people need to be to feel heard and understood. So when we're meeting with our clients, we shouldn't be the one that's mostly talking. We should be more in the receptive mode and really taking in what they're sharing. And then periodically checking as needed to make sure that we understood and that we got it. So um, that more than anything can really build a strong therapeutic working relationship, a working alliance. Why? Because it really shows respect and it shows care and that you know, and it puts the person in the expert position, expert in their life. So it really validates and um, and helps the person feel heard. All of those attitudes and approaches we talked about on Tuesday. Um, so frequently checking in also to see how they're doing. Am I on track? Should we review? You know, maybe you're having one of those um, meetings or sessions where you're just really covering a lot of material. So really breaking it down and kind of summarizing from time to time and making sure that you got it right. And again, when you're doing this, you want to make sure that they're correct, you know, feel safe to correct you if you've got something a little off. And that really builds trust and rapport. Asking permission. So um, you know, at every step of the way. So things like, you know, I'm wondering if it would be okay to talk about such and such now, or what um, would you like to try journaling over the next week until we meet next time? You know, always asking their permission. It's their treatment, right? And then communicating, good communication always would be clear, direct, um, open-ended questions. I mean, close-ended questions can be good communication too, but the open-ended questions really encourage that sharing. And so some examples of open-ended questions, you know, these would start with, these are questions that don't have just a yes or no response. Um, so how or what would be good ways, you know, um, to begin these questions, like how would you like to see things change? Or what was it like before when, you know, whatever it is? Or can you tell me more about what that was like for you? And see, you can see these are very open, encouraging questions. And then not interrupting. 
And this can be hard, um, especially if we have a lot that we want to cover in a session. Um, not think, you know, we don't want to be thinking about what we're going to say next while they're speaking. Even if we're quietly doing that, that is almost the same as interrupting because you've now lost your attention on what they're sharing. So, um, and then when we do interrupt, it, it sends a, a message that what we have to say is more important or that we are somehow more important. And so that's, that's not, you know, a good thing that that would be the opposite of uh, what we would want to do to build rapport. And then the content of our speech is always important, but especially if we're on the phone, our words even hold more weight. So how we frame questions, how we respond, we want to do this in a strength-based approach that's validating, reassuring, re reinforcing, um, you know, and uh, really helps the client feel worthy. Okay, and sometimes if we frame questions in a negative way, it can make a client feel like something's wrong with them or they did something wrong. It can trigger, um, you know, unpleasant feelings that are not going to help them feel trust, like, like they can trust or be safe. Some, we've talked about a lot of things that you would not want to do, but some things that sometimes happen without us really realizing is imposing our goals onto the client. We don't want to do this, of course. Um, sometimes we have what we think will help the client and we assume that they, they want that thing too. And we haven't carefully listened to what it is they really want. So for instance, maybe you're working with a client that, um, you know, they have services with the doctor and the nurse medication services and maybe they really do need some case management so they work with a case manager and they don't want therapy they just don't want it it's, they're not interested at this time so we want to make sure that we're or maybe they were originally or they thought they were and now they're not so we want to just make sure that we're really paying attention and not in you know if a, a clue to this happening is if you're working with a client and you start to feel frustrated that they're not following through. This will happen sometimes if you're working on case management tasks. Um, maybe the client needs to follow through on a doctor's appointment and so you've been working with them to link them to a doctor and they're not following through with that. So sometimes they just need to have the, um, the tasks broken down and you to do it for them or with them. But sometimes it's just, something that they're uh, really, it's not a goal for them. So finding, this is beyond the scope of this training, but finding ways to join with them so that you can find out, you know, what is important to them so that you can help them uh, to make it to the doctor or in a, you know, with a different, um, that would fulfill a different goal that they have, but they can still end up being seen by the doctor. Um, taking phone calls or checking notifications during the session. So we don't want to do this. Have you ever been on um, in a session or even just with a friend or in a meeting in person and you can see somebody kind of looking down and texting or checking their messages during your conversation or during a meeting. So we want to and you know um, even though people can be really skilled at doing that, we want to be sure that we're not doing that in our sessions, um, you know, over video. Um, 
and also um, even if you're on the phone, if you're checking your notifications or you're checking something when you're on the phone and the client can't see you, they will often be able to tell by the tones of your voice. Maybe your voice drifts off, maybe there's a shift, or maybe they their voice shifted as they're telling you something really important and your voice didn't really follow along in the shift. So um, those again, those vocal nuances are are important. Um, so side note, when you're in person, so if any of you have ever seen these videos uh, that are in slow motion of people interacting and having a conversation, and they'll slow it down to so that you can see the micro ex, uh, expressions that people have. Um, there are these tiny little things, and then if you slow down um, these interactions, you'll start to see that uh, people will mimic each other. They'll mimic expressions and they'll mimic little behaviors. And this is a way that human beings naturally attune and build rapport or connect with each other when they're talking in person. And so some of that is what's lost when we're over video, those tiny little attunements. Well, the good news is when you're on the phone, you can do the same thing, but with your voice. So um, I know we already talked about that, but it's almost like, I mean, you almost will mimic tones, shifts, modulations, volume, speed, pace, things like that. It start, you start to follow each other vocally. And so again, that's why I think phone sessions can be a little bit easier to keep and build rapport than, than videos sometimes can. Um, so other things you don't want to do using language, such as you should or you have to. Um, you know, again, that's sort of imposing our goals onto the person. And of course, that's not going to go well. It, it can, um, people will automatically resist to that. I think we all, all would. Um, so this can result in a power struggle. It can generate feelings of shame. You know, the person might feel like we disapprove, you know, of what they want and we're trying to impose what we want on them, introduces a power dynamic that we don't want because we want to, you know, be connected and, and have a trusting working alliance. Um, you know, after all, the client is there for, for themselves, not for us. So let's open it up. I'd love to hear from you guys. You can chat or you can speak up if you want. Um, what are some ways that you've adapted attending skills and communication skills to phone or video sessions in these recent months? They can be some of the same things that I talked about. It can be totally different. It would be great to hear what your experience is. And or have you had difficulty doing this or has it been really easy and, and not a problem for you? Or if you're a person doing both phone and video, do you find one easier than the other as far as connecting and staying connected and having that um, rapport with the client? Hi. Hi. I can share a little bit. Oh, that'd be um, cool. Thank you. Nora. So I, I have um, been doing video conferences. And um, one of the things that I do is um, I will, you know, acknowledge, like I said last time, 
that it's kind of strange that we're meeting this way. Um, and I will explain that I might take notes. Um, so I'm sort of like narrating like everything that I'm doing. Um, even though, um, like you said, you know, they might not, they might be able to um, see my facial expressions or might not, I'm not really sure. Um, some of the people that I work with are pretty severe, so I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I, I try to um, be um, very um, transparent and just kind of like let them know what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um, so, so far, so good. That's great. Do you find yourself revisiting it? Like, like maybe you'll mention it in the beginning and then maybe after a few sessions, mention it again or check in with them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll check in and, you know, just kind of ask um, if they have any thoughts or, um, you know, questions or whatever. So, um. I think that, um, I, I'm not sure actually, but you know, I sort of like preface it with like, we're, you know, living in crazy times and um, because of, you know, what's going on with the pandemic, this is how we're doing things to keep you and I safe. Um, and so um, I feel like um, people have responded positively. Wow, that's great. Have you had people when you check in do uh, do they ever say, yeah, it's going this is okay except for and they share like a small little thing that you need to adjust or change? They they haven't. And it it could just be um, the population that I work with. I'm not sure. But mm -hmm. I haven't had that yet. Yeah. That's great. That's really great that you're checking in. And I like that you're checking in regularly because it's easy to think, you know, we see so many people and it's easy to think, okay, I mentioned this at the beginning when we switched to telehealth and then just mm -hmm. forget about it, you know? Right, right, right. But I think people need reassurance. And also a lot of times clients might feel shy to bring something up or mm -hmm. uh, nervous about bringing up something they don't like. Uh, and so giving them an opportunity to really, you know, share uh, if they, there's a piece of it that's not working for them, I think is great. Yeah, Thank I you. think so. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> Thank you Thank so you. much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, um, so I'm going to put this out here during this discussion here. Um, because I, what I'm hearing a lot of in the last, I'd say, three weeks or so, is pe people were, you know, had switched to phone services with their clients, and I'm thinking mostly of uh, um, people who are working with older, uh, not older adults, but adults, not children, adults or older adults, and often with severe mental illness, and or just in, um, you know, with a lot of challenges, and and now after we've been in this situation for several months, they're starting to be annoyed by having phone sessions because they wanna go back to in-person and in a lot of cases, we're not able to do that yet. And so um, I guess clients are really wanting to just sort of stop services for now until they can go back, like they're over the phone services. 
And so I'm wondering if any of you have experienced that and what ways have you handled that is it, if it comes up? And while I'm waiting for you to think about it or some of you, if you, prefer, if you don't wanna speak out, you know, use the chat box, it's okay. That's, that's a, uh, we've got Jean monitoring that. Some of the thoughts I've had while you're thinking about that are, well, it looks like there might be some responses. Well, Lisa brought up a question from earlier. So while people are brainstorming about your okay. question, clients, um, she was wondering if you had thoughts about how to balance not interrupting clients that may be really tangential or have pressured speech, where you feel like it may be helpful to focus them somewhat by interrupting them. Great point. Yeah, because some, sometimes if you don't, 45 minutes can go by. Yeah. So with those clients, um, you know, it's tricky because a lot of time those clients will have life experience of being interrupted and cut off by most people in their lives. And, um, you know, and, it, you know, and that might be part, partly why they go on and on. It, it, it depends. But so I think in that case, just like you would in real, in person, um, you would want to really have an open and authentic conversation about how uh, reviewing communication skills that, that involves taking turns and have a, a an agreed upon safe way that you can switch to take turns from time to time. Um, and, you know, this might be something that needs to be reviewed at every session. Um, you may have already kind of had something like that in place with the client when you were doing in-person services and then it kind of went out the window now that you're over the phone. Um, and that can happen for, other, for several reasons, one of which could be if that person really um, has challenges with focusing or, um, you know, just is a concrete thinker, and then now you're on the phone and they're not seeing you, they're missing the visual cues that you're ready to talk now and take, take the floor. And so um, taking the time to kind of talk about that and educating, like now that we're on the phone, what, what is a different, because maybe before you were able to uh, take your turn to share by giving them some kind of a physical signal. So now there might be a word that you could come up with together to use or a clearing of the throat as the signal of, okay, maybe like wind up that thought and then I'll, I have something to say, or even just asking their, again, asking permission for pretty much, is pretty much a good answer for almost all, all these communication challenges. Would it be okay if when I feel like um, I understand what you're saying, I stop you and then check in with you to make sure I got it. And then what would be the best way? What, how would you like me to stop you so that I can check in? And really setting it up that way putting them, uh, let them make the decision of what that's gonna look like. And then in the case like what Lisa described, you'd probably have to do that, you know, in every session or maybe even multiple times a session. But really doing it in that way that puts them, uh, gives them power, I think is going to help maintain that relationship without hurting. So yeah, I mean, in that case, you do need to interrupt. 
but in a respectful way. Lisa was just thanking you for the helpful su suggestions. And then Omar is back and he just wrote that it's more easier in person. So I wonder, Omar, if you'd like, you can unmute yourself and elaborate on that. Hi, Omar. Hey, hi. Ms. Watson, you kind of explained exactly what I would do. I would ask first for permission, like, because it's more easier in person to me because I could, uh, I can see all the gestures and if the client is nervous or uh, on video, you can't really see as much as you like to see if the client is having any difficulties like you would in person. And yeah. You do get a chance. You do get a chance to, to let them think things over. You can see it that they're thinking. On the phone, you can't see them thinking, so uh, you might interrupt. So, and that's like might not be the right time to interrupt. Excellent point. Yeah, and so I think that's that's a great thing to share with them. Like you know, usually when we're in person, I can see that you're thinking about what you're gonna say still. You're not done. And now I can't see you. So um, I might ac accidentally interrupt your thought and then talking that through. Excellent. But I have had a lot of success over the phone, but I still don't. I still don't know if the person is actually okay. If they say they're okay, so I won't elaborate on uh, that specific issue that they're going through at the time. Because sometimes people don't want to open up over the phone just because they don't know who else is in the background on the phone. In the video, they might still don't see who's all in the same room that you're in. That's another thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think that's. A great point and that's that safe space you know setting up the safe space and we talked about reassuring and explaining where you're at you know that nobody's in the room what you, what measures you've taken to make sure nobody's around so that they know that people aren't overhearing on your end but um, you know I think probably some it might not be a bad idea to to talk about that every single time and even if you are reassuring them um, you know some clients aren't going to necessarily believe that that's, you know, true, but I think if you do it from each time, it can be really helpful. Yes, due to their diagnosis, they might not, especially if they're schizophrenic, they might not believe you anyway. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest, I think, biggest challenges with telehealth is that it can really trigger um, people's delusions, or you know, or it can really increase par paranoid thinking that people already might be experiencing, it can make it worse. So that can be a real barrier. Um, so, I mean, it's an opportunity to try to, to uh, I know that you can't, you can't make somebody not believe their delusions. <laughs> that's not, that's not possible. So, you know, it might be, you know, putting it, asking them, what what do they think would be a good way to to move forward? You know, what what do they think would help? Is there something that you could do or that they could do to make it feel more safe? And brainstorming with them. 
And um, Eve, I think, was responding to your last question about uh, what to do with clients when they don't want to meet anymore, kind of a way to maybe make it more dynamic, I think. She was asking if anyone used chat with their clients um, via whatever online Zoom or what have you, so they can see and hear your question and maybe write their responses if they don't like to talk. Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Eve. We'll see if anybody does that. I know with, um, when I worked with Kay, they really liked doing that. They liked that form of, because I would sometimes have phone sessions with them um, after hours if there was something that, you know, came up. And they really didn't like talking on the phone. They wanted to text. <laughs> so we had to figure out ways that were, HIPAA compliant to do that, but I, I know some clients might want to do that. Anyone? Does anyone have that experience? So we can answer Eve. Omar is just uh, responding that they really like to text. Ah, yeah, because you work with Tay, right, Omar? Yeah. Yeah, that can be a challenge if you're the provider and you're you don't like texting. <laughs> But it's the, you know, it's the client's treatment, right? Yeah. And so, you know, just a caveat that we all need to make sure that we're following um, our agency's rules and guidelines around that and using, um, you know, like in Zoom, you can certainly chat. Yeah. They respond more quickly when you text or you doing this. Uh, I don't know if do the video, but I guess if you did do a FaceTime they probably would uh, respond more faster. So that's interesting because if you're using a video um, type of video conferencing, then they can see your face and you can see theirs. And then they're responding, because one of the problems with texting or chat boxes is that you miss the emotional tone of the, or the, you know, the, those vocal nuances that reflect emotions or, you know, help clarify uh, communication. But if you're seeing them, maybe that could be helpful. Anyway, that's very interesting. So yeah, I like the idea, Eve, that you brought up because there's, there's modifications and adjustments that you can work through with the clients to keep them engaged in their treatment. So that, you know, and also one thing that I recommend if you do have clients that, that want to stop treatment because they're tired of being on the phone, you know, really exploring with them what is it that they're missing because they might be part of what they got out of coming in person to sessions was the sense of getting out and going somewhere, which is missing right now for everybody. So that might be just their frustration with that, with the pandemic situation kind of playing out in that way. Also, if they're missing social interaction that they had by maybe coming to your clinic or center and, um, you know, with other people, maybe you can implement sort of like uh, at the beginning of each session, just do a little chit chat time to kind of fill in some of that social interaction that they're missing. Um, where you talk about like the latest song they're into or something, you know, not related to your session where it's just, or a small talk or something to kind of fill that need. So I think, again, if you open it up the discussion to really see what's coming, what's underneath that 
desire to stop because of phone sessions, it might be more, more that you can do to really help them. And to rediscover, you know, it might just be that their goals that were in place before uh, we went to remote services don't really, uh, aren't applying anymore. And I think that's probably, you know, the case for most people's treatment plans have shifted since we went to remote services. So maybe just revisiting their treatment goals is really the solution. Um, okay. And we have one more comment from Lisa who talked about how it's challenging for the practitioner, but there could be an upside to texting or chatting for some clients who find it more comfortable to communicate in a more indirect way or have social anxiety. Absolutely, and it's their treatment. So we're, of course, going to um, comply with what is going to help them. And if we need to um, increase our our typing skills or our chatting skills, then, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, it also could be an alternative for somebody that does have some paranoia. Maybe they're worried about being overheard, but they're not worried about what they're writing being somehow captured, if, they're, if that's the struggle. So providing options, I think, is excellent. And of course, that also really builds trust and rapport when a client, we, we you know, open up the conversation, we can suggest these as options. Um, we're always checking in to see if this, how the telehealth situation that we're using with them is working for them, making it safe for them to bring up any complaints they might have or changes they might want to have. That's going to build your relationship. And then when you, you know, when they bring up maybe like for instance, they'd rather chat and you, are on board with that and you go for it, which of course you would, then they're going to feel a lot, they're going to feel empowered, they're going to feel supported, they're going to feel trust, trusting, it's going to strengthen your working alliance. All right, so team coordination. Um, so I think many of us on uh, here today um, work with clients in teams. We're not the only person that the client is seeing, right? Especially because there's a wide variety of roles um, that you all have. So it's really, it's always important to coordinate and communicate with the other people that are working with the client, right? So therapists, talking to the case manager, talking to the doctor and peer partner, substance use counselor, doctor, nurse, etc. So knowing what the left hand and the right hands are doing is key to providing really um, supportive and effective treatment for our clients. So, and for FSP teams, especially, many of you here are probably on FSP teams. So that's already, it can be challenging in normal circumstances. And now that we're in remote circumstances, I think it can be even more challenging. Um, but I don't know. I'm interested to, to hear what you guys have to say about that. Um, I was recently on a call um, where uh, it was an FSP providers call. And one of the supervisors on the call said that his team had discovered that Microsoft Teams, that uh, app, is excellent for his team to stay connected to each other. At each morning and throughout the day, 
as they're, you know, even as in the moment situations come up and maybe the nurse needs to pull in the therapist for something. So um, there are ways to, to stay connected in, in a way maybe even better in this remote world. So um, I'm, in a little bit, I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about that. We'll stop to talk about that. Um, something I want to mention that I think is very common, a common challenge is that our psychiatrists, so the MDs or nurse practitioners acting in the psychiatric role, providing, providing psychiatric services, they're key to many of the clients that we work with, right? Those medication support services are super important and, um, and the nurses. And that regular exchange, exchange of information, an update of information um, between the med, med support staff and the non-medical staff is really uh, key. For instance, um, you know, if somebody, if somebody you're working with is taking a certain medication, the nurse is going to be checking in with them or the doctor or both, if they see both a nurse and um, a psychiatrist, are going to be checking in with them about any side effects they might be having or uh, any new symptoms. And they may, the client may feel a little intimidated or shy and not maybe speak up when they're talking to the doctor about certain or the nurse about certain things they're experiencing, but they might tell you. And you might think, you know, it's out on my scope to know if that's a side effect exactly, because I'm, say, a case manager, but, you know, or a therapist, but I need to make sure that the nurse or doctor knows that the client just shared this with me. So really, um, because that could be really important, um, and that medication may need to be changed. So um, that's just one example of many. Um, so it's really helpful to understand what the role of your fellow team members uh, what each each role is, what services they provide, what do they do, what interventions do they do with and for their clients to help them towards their treatment goals, and how do the services that you are each providing complement each other to sort of, you know, um, come together to help the client achieve their goals. Each team member's relationship with the client is different. So you will have clients who maybe they see the case manager a lot more often than they see the therapist or the doctor, they may feel a lot more comfortable then with that case manager and share, you know, maybe something about their substance use. And if you're the case manager, you want to make sure that the doctor and nurse and the therapist, you know, and anyone working with the client, that it's appropriate that they know, know that. Um, you know, they may disclose more to you than they are to someone else on the treatment team. So that's another thing to really be aware of. And so this all relates to engagement because we need to, um, you know, the more that we're making sure that we're serving the client's needs and that the team is serving the needs, the more uh, engaged the client will be in treatment. So sometimes it really, um, if there's an issue with the client's engagement in treatment, it could be because all the different providers that are helping the client aren't on the same page. So. Let's take a little look here at, um, we're going to go through some of the roles. I know there's a lot more, there are a lot more roles than the few that are on these next slides. But just to kind of, you know, uh, kind of hit, hit some of them, get, you'll get the idea as we go through these, just to kind of get some idea of what different engagement skills come in um, 
they're all, all the engagement skills that we've talked about are gonna apply to all of the roles. But we're gonna just talk about some that really come out um, with each different role. So for um, therapists, first off, their role and their scope of practice has to do with doing that, um, you know, the psych assessment and um, the biopsychosocial assessment and um, providing psychotherapy services, which are targeted on, uh, they're targeting the symptoms and behaviors that have been pro problematic for the client. Okay, so that's their scope of practice. And then the engagement skills that they, some of the engagement skills they would use to do this uh, would include reflection, so reflecting back after listening, and they're going to be reflecting like emotions and feelings, um, normalizing these. Uh, so because that's their scope of practice, that's their realm. Um, it's symptom focused, feelings, thoughts, behaviors focused. They'll be doing interpretation, which others wouldn't necessarily do as part of their reflecting and um, providing psychoeducation to the client. Um, so, and this is important for everybody, the therapist, on the call already know this. So really this uh, slide is meant so that others on the call, you know, it's just for your information and to, even though you probably know this too, just, you know, a lot or a little, um, I think it's just good to remind ourselves of what the therapists are doing and what each role is doing. So common challenges um, to engagement would include uh, for therapists are that they have to ask very personal and sensitive questions when they first meet a client that first day that they're doing their intake assessment. And, um, and doing that without the benefit of, of being able to see how the person is responding physically if you're on the phone or being able to do so in a limited way over video can be very challenging. So that's a special engagement challenge therapists have. And so for our mental health workers uh, and case managers, so the role and scope of practice, um, the services that, that you are all providing, rehab services, we call them in LA County DMH world, right? This is that skills building. So you're really focusing on behaviors and concrete um, skills building, like building social skills, maybe organizational skills, um, skills related to daily living activities, uh, even sometimes communication skills. And then um, linking the client to resources, so that's that targeted case management. Um, that's what TCM stands for, right? So, so what the mental health workers and case managers are doing complement what um, the therapists are doing. The therapists are focused on those thoughts and feelings and the, you know, and the underlying things uh, related to their symptoms. And meanwhile, mental health workers and case managers are really doing these very behavioral practical, um, it's almost like coaching. And then the linking to resources is also a very business-like but very supportive type of service that really helps the client be linked to things that are really gonna help them in a very practical, concrete way to help them improve their functioning. So these complement each other these two roles. And engagement skills used um, by mental health workers and case managers would include really that meeting the client where they are. Okay, of course that's important for everybody, but this really comes up a lot uh, with this role. And, you know, really making sure that you're not 
asking the client to do something that they really aren't ready for, you know, uh, really scaffolding their learning and, and starting and building, building up from uh, where they are right now, really listening and making sure that you're getting it so that you can do that gradually with them. Um, reflecting and summarizing the information that the client shared to ensure understanding, of course, we all do that, but um, that comes up, um, I think any case manager on the call knows that that is a big part of, of your sessions and presenting options for the client to choose from. So this goes back to that meeting them where they are and really putting them in the driver's seat. It's not like you're telling them what to do. And I think sometimes um, it can feel like, like if you're a mental health worker or case manager, it can feel like you're pulled in that direction of, you know, telling someone what to do instead of understanding what their goals are and really supporting them where they're at and letting them prioritize what do they want to work on right now, not doing too many things at once. So um, challenges, frequently or common challenges um, in this work is feeling frustrated sometimes that clients is not following through with the task or rehab skill. And again, it usually comes back to maybe you're ahead of them. And so going back to where they are right now, what are they up for right now? Asking them, letting them choose. And asking their permission for what they wanna work on. If they have, you know, several goals, for instance. Peer specialists. So, um, I don't know if we have a peer specialist on the call today. On Monday, I don't think we did, but, um, very important uh, to the treatment team. So the role and scope of practice, peer specialists can also provide like case managers and mental health workers rehab and TCM services. Um, but they have this special opportunity uh, for connecting with the client through shared lived experience. And often if there's a peer specialist working on the treatment team with a client, that will often be the person that the client feels the most rapport with or trusts the most because it's a different relationship. Um, engagement skills include, for peer specialists, um, self-disclosure. So there's, there's not a whole lot of self-disclosure happening in other roles. It can, you know, when you're self-disclosing, it would be for a very uh, carefully thought out and mindful reason to do so. But with peer specialists, there's a lot more room to do that because it's, um, it's part of their role and scope. Um, so challenges though can include for peer specialists working with clients and on the treatment team is that idea of boundaries. So self-disclosure, sure, but making sure still that you know you're support you're in a supportive role for the client. Um, so doctors and nurse practitioners who are providing psychiatric services, um, their scope of practice um, and their services include assessing and prescribing medications, monitoring and adjusting those. And um, the engagement skills, um, among others, you know, they're asking a lot of open-ended questions, especially in the beginning, as they're getting um, all the history and getting the information and assessing, but, but also throughout, because they really want to make sure as they're monitoring the medications, um, that they've got uh, the dose right, the medication right, all that stuff. So a lot of reflective listening and verifying understanding. And challenges um, for those folks can include that they might not see the client very often. They might just see the client once a month once they kind of get going. 
um, and they might their sessions might be relatively short compared to the amount the length of the sessions that others uh, working with the client have. So that can really uh, be a challenge to engagement. Um, and then nursing staff. Um, so the role scope of practice, and I believe we had a couple of nurses on the call on uh, Tuesday. So, so go ahead and chime in if I if I'm missing something, nurses. <laughs> um, administration of medications prescribed by MD or NP, um, or like the delivery of medications. Um, how the how the client's going to get them monitoring for side effects, um, monitoring for substance use, things like that. Um, educating the client about medications and problem solving. So for the rest of you who are not nurses, that's, that's what these, these uh, folks are doing with the client. Um, they're problem solving around med compliance. That can be a big uh, part of their job. So uh, among others, engagement skills uh, would include um, a lot of open-ended questions, again, because you're really trying to uh, check to see how the medication is working for them and how you know, if they're taking it at the times and that they're supposed to be taking it to make sure that they're getting it, the dosage is right and all that stuff. And reflective listening, verifying understanding, clarification, similar to the um, doctor and nurse practitioner. And challenges for engagement for nursing staff include missed appointments. So this can, uh, clients can, can frequently miss or cancel or just no show for nursing appointments. Now, in this world of remote services, this um, might be different because uh, nurses, uh, I know that at our agency, um, at Pacific Clinic, sometimes the nurses are going to the clients, um, depending on what the medication situation is for them. Um, so uh, I'm interested to know if, that is, uh, if that's more challenging or less challenging right now in this time of remote services. And then clinical supervisors, so um, as clinicians, they can do everything, you know, they're, they're therapists, uh, they have, a, you know, that's their discipline. So they can provide assessment psychotherapy services and many will have working relationships with clients in their programs or they'll fill in if a therapist is not around or out. Um, or not just therapists, they can uh, fill in for any any staff, um, any mental health staff, not the doctor or the nurse. Um, and they, you know, probably assist with crisis intervention. So engagement skills used include any, uh, any that we've talked about um, that therapists, case managers, peer specialists uh, do, depending on what service they're providing. So lots of variation here. And challenges uh, related to engagement for clinical supervisors would be that they might not be, um, well, first off, they, they're, if they're the clinical supervisor for, a, uh, you know, in a program with a whole lot of clients, then it could be hard to be familiar with the treatment of so many clients. So if they have to jump in and provide a service, they have to be able to quickly access the record and be able to get a feel for what's going on with this client so they can really help the best possible way. So also that that person you know if they've never met this client that they're jumping in now to help that can be you know tricky a challenge as far as building rapport so uh, if you're a supervisor having the ability to really quickly you know uh, build some rapport and trust uh, 
is uh, key. And so that goes along with the other challenge listed here is that you're infrequently working with clients. So even if you have a, a working relationship with a, some clients in your program because you've, you know, they know you as a point person and maybe you end up seeing them um, here and there, still, if you're, you're not seeing them on a regular basis, probably, and so that continuity and being, knowing where they're at in their treatment today uh, can be a challenge and keeping that consistent engagement. Um, can be a challenge. We have a comment from Odessa talking about how clients missing doses of medications frequently can cause all sorts of issues, which is, you know, definite truth yeah. there. So I don't know if you want to talk more about that, Odessa, and how you handle those challenges. Well, actually, uh, right now, it's much more difficult working remotely but I stay in contact with my team when I get calls from my clients and I can kind of tell just from the conversation that the medication is an issue and so uh, I try to go over and re-educate the client about the medication dosage and, and and have my team to check on them the team's the part of the team that like our uh, therapists are, are in many cases, it's, it's going to be our uh, uh, person who, who does substance abuse. Anybody I can get to check on them, I have them check on them. But uh, missing doses of medication, it seems to be the biggest problem that I have to deal with. And it's so Odessa that you're finding that's happening even more than it did before we went to remote. Yes, because I, you know, I usually help them get their refills and everything. Yeah. I'm out there with them. I check on them. I check and see what they have left. If they need to have it ordered, I order it. I go pick it up, you know, bring it to them, whatever I need to do to make sure they have it. And that's a real challenge right now because you know, not too many people are doing that right now. Yes. Well, and it sounds like, so being engaged with your other team members is even more important than ever. It is. It is. And it sounds like you have a good way of communicating. What Are you using an app to communicate or just phone? No, we, we text. We, we use a phone and text. But because of all of the different programs, the project room key and so forth and them being pulled away to do so many other different jobs sometimes it takes a little longer for me to get them to uh check on a particular client than usual so, right yeah but it's a challenge uh, COVID has presented us with so many challenges right now mm -hmm. you know it's, you know and your your um what you're bringing up really speaks to, and I want to commend you for really being so aware of who all works with each client, because I know that there's been times when sometimes people don't, don't know who the case manager is or who the substance uh, worker is, yes. you know, and so it sounds like you've got a good, you know, we're an MDT team, you know, so. Yeah, we all have our different roles, so, uh, and we all work closely together, and uh, due to me being 
at risk myself. I'm I'm working remotely. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, but my team, uh, still, we stay in touch on a regular basis. Well, I'll bet that really makes the clients that you do work with feel cared for, you know. I believe so, it does. I believe yeah. it does. Yes. Because yes. if they know that you've sent someone else that they already have a relationship with on the team and they show up to check on them or to make sure, you know, to find out what's going on, that's going to that's really not only is it going to help them with their treatment to get their medication right but it's also going to help them to feel cared for and and they're comfortable with that you know Uh they've been introduced to the whole team in in most cases and know them and as soon as they say well one of us sent you know the team to check on them and see what they needed they'll allow us to help them so it works that's great oh my gosh well I commend you for all the beautiful work that you're doing, and um, oh. I mean, it really does make a difference. Everybody, it's my pleasure. I just wish, uh, you know, I could do more. There's times when I wish I could do more. So yeah, yeah. But I I appreciate this because I'm getting a lot of good information and ideas. It's just that we have so many trainings going on right now, and some of them conflict with the time. So I'm sorry I was late joining. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Um, we have basically one minute, less than a minute left for a Q&A, but I feel like we kind of have been having a Q&A. Are there any last-minute things, comments, and anybody wants to share anything in the chat box, Jean? I would like to just make one more comment. This is Odessa. Uh, I uh, always, with my client's permission, when I take them to an appointment, uh, I ask if it's okay for me to attend or participate in the appointment with them. And usually that's always an okay. And that way I can take notes and make, you know, uh, get everything all of the information for the clients because they are not used to taking care of that type of thing and it's always helpful for them if you walk them through the whole process including getting the going to the pharmacy and setting up the medications and everything uh that's that's always helpful so whenever they'll allow you to i suggest you know that you do it Excellent. That's excellent. Thank you so much. I, I, I think this is great. Thank you so much for sharing. Everybody, that, um, everybody that's here attending, even if you didn't share, thank you all of you. Um, this has been a fun experience for me. I hope it's been very helpful um, or even just a little bit helpful for you all. Um, here are some references. Um, oh, just as a summary, we can still certainly effectively engage with our clients and connect with those we serve, even if we're not over the phone. I have a more concise summary written down. I'll do that. So all people want to feel heard. We'll end with this and understood, right? This makes us feel cared for and connected. And we can do this very effectively over the phone or video and still build strong working alliances with clients that will help to keep them engaged in treatment.
and by coordinating with our treatment team members to address any barriers to the client's needs being met. So here are some references. Um, it's the same list from before. And thank you everyone for all that you do to make a difference in the world. You really do make a difference. And so take care of yourselves and thanks again. Yes, and we have some people saying happy Juneteenth, which is so important to remember, Eve and Eric. Yeah. Thank you. Happy Juneteenth to everyone. Hopefully it will be a holiday, a national holiday soon.